We're taking a slice from Jesus' life and teaching to close out the year. This one uh, chapter in Mark over the rest of November through December. This will be the way that I'll teach the Gospels uh, in, in the years uh, to come. It'd take one or two or three chapters at the most instead of trying to go uh, all the way uh, through one. The, the Gospels lend well to taking them uh, uh, in chapter sections. And so we're going to be in Mark 12 to the close out of the year here. And you know, if you know your, your Bible, Mark 12 is toward the end of that gospel and where we are is toward the end of uh, Jesus' earthly life. That is, uh, he's moving toward crucifixion. And so what we have in this story, the story of the vineyard owner and these uh, terrible uh, renters, these tenants that he had, is we have a story about rejection. And it's, it's one more rejection in a series of rejections. This one broke the back, as we say, but it, it also built the church. And we see in this story that it was, it was not just one great climactic rejection, uh, but a line of rejections uh, going back hundreds of years. I'll, I'll show you that as we go through this. This parable Mackenzie read to us, it's about the prophets all those guys in the, in the Old Testament up to John the Baptist, everybody who preceded Jesus announced his eventual coming, how they all, each one, found the people of God unwilling to render to God what was rightfully his. Render is the word we'll, we'll make uh, operative for this series, what I've uh, called this series. And you know, it's, it's easy to speak uh, in terms of what is owed God and, and, and his rights and what rightfully belongs to God. And, and a lot of us love to, 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 to jump on that. Uh, it feels like we're defending God's honor to say, uh, you render to God what is his due or else. And there is a or else in this story. You see it there in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. These renters who act like owners, who've done all of this uh, uh, wrong to this owner over time, all these servants that he sent, and then finally his son, who are the tenants? Well, in context, uh, they're the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people. They were always going to be held in a stricter judgment. The prophets who preceded Jesus had said so to them for centuries. It's not new. And so this story, it's told in that vein as a parallel to, to God's experience. Here's, here's what God's experience of Israel's rejections feels like to him. That's the story. Just as this vineyard owner sent and sent and sent to his renters who acted like owners, all the sending he did displayed this remarkable patience Great patience with those most resistant to him, but even hope for them. Because I tried to make a connection for you a couple of years ago in Psalm 40 that patience is bearing the burden of hoping. And we think of patience as a virtue, and it is, but the reason patience is a virtue and the fruit of the Spirit even, the reason patience is virtuous is because the one who is patient is bearing a burden, a burden God himself carries and subjects himself to, which is a marvel. Now, looking at a parable, looking at this particular parable, 
Jesus wasn't just making up this story. He's actually taking an old Isaiah poem and he's telling it slant in the poet Emily Dickinson's words. She gave us the great poetic line, tell all the truth but tell it slant. And that's what parables do. All the time through parables, Jesus is telling all the truth but he's telling it slant through the artistic medium of of story. And so if we went back to Isaiah chapter 5, you know, we were in Isaiah earlier this year in March and April, we did a little series from Isaiah. And if we went back to Isaiah 5, we'd find that chapter, it's poetry, but it's, it's confrontation in art form. Isaiah compared Israel there, 800 years before Jesus, Isaiah used the language that Israel was a vineyard, a planting that God himself put into the ground and then he hoped for good grapes but what he got was wild grapes and so in consequence wild animals would overrun the vineyard effectively destroying it that took the form of other nations taking over Israel throughout their history up to Jesus Rome was occupying before them uh, other nations going back to to Babylon and this was the, these other nations overrunning Israel was, was, uh, was God's instrument of, of judgment against them. So Jesus is here invoking Isaiah. And they knew it. If you look back up in chapter 11, if your Bible's still open, chapter 11, verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And all through chapter 12, we're going to see his interaction with these particular individuals the spiritual leaders of the nation, the people responsible for the spiritual health of uh, the people of God, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, chapter 11, verse 27, when it comes down to chapter 12, verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, in context, that's who the they are. They were going to arrest him, but they feared the people. This is verse 12 in our text. For they perceived, they told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Isaiah confronted the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people 800 years previously by way of a poem about a vineyard that God planted. Jesus does it by parable. And here he says to these leaders, you're the people that Isaiah, 800 years previous, uh, you're you're the ones that the destruction he foretold is, is going to befall. Those responsible for the spiritual health of the nation knew Jesus considered them spiritually diseased. They were effectively dead to God, though they handled God's things. Jesus invoked Isaiah's poem. That's the connection. It's not making up the story. There's actually a a precedent for it. Way back in Isaiah 5, 800 years before him, he invokes Isaiah's poem, but he tells it slant. What's the slant? In Isaiah's poem... The vineyard is destroyed. In Jesus' parable, the vineyard owner is destroyed through the person of his son and yet rises up to outlive his destroyers. Now with this in mind, I want us to pick up two things from this story as we normally do. If you've not been here before, I tend to try to give about uh, two, two things to consider in every message. Every once in a while, I'll throw a third in, and then every once in a while, we'll only do one. But usually it's two. That's just sort of become my thing, and so we run with it. 
And there are two things I think we can get from this story. The first being that the church, that's you and I in Christ, the church is built on rejection. Well, look at that. And then second, the church is built for resilience. These two points actually have a nice symmetry to them. You would think I have a Baptist background. Actually, I do have a Baptist background. So I alliterated this week, reaching back into my heritage. Two things. The church is built on rejection and the church is built for resilience. Now, this is not a parable about the church. It's a parable about the prophets who preceded the ministry of Jesus and then Jesus' own ministry. But two implications emerge from the parable and apply to the experience of following Jesus in the world. That the church is built on rejection and the church is built for resilience. Now, to to take these one-two will move up the parable. That is, we'll start in verses 10 and 11 in service to this first point. The church is built on rejection. Look at verses 10 and 11. He's quoting a psalm. Have you not read this scripture? Verse 10, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Have you not read that? He says to these guys who could tell you exactly where this was. Of course they'd read it. They knew exactly where this was in Scripture. He's quoting Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was our call to worship text this morning. So we've already been there in this service. And by the way, let me just say, in quoting uh, the poetry that is the Psalms, the, the songbook of Israel, Don't underestimate, don't dismiss the role of art and the role of art forms in getting us uh, past what C.S. Lewis once called the watchful dragons of our religiosity. Jesus used story. He used story uh, drawn from poetry. He used songs, psalms. All of this is, is art form. What's significant about all that? Lewis's fuller quote, I just mentioned, he gave us this idea of the watchful dragons of our religiosity. Uh, Lewis wrote an essay called, Sometimes Fairy Stories May Say Best What's to Be Said. Uh, He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, as uh, most of you probably know, and and wrote a lot of different kinds of what they called fairy stories. And... uh, He talks about in his essay how he came to realize the power of stories. He says, I saw how stories, he was talking about when he was a young man and how church really didn't do much for him. And then he got interested in in literature and the old Nordic tales and, and, and how this sort of opened a new world to him. And then he became a Christian. And so he said, I saw how stories, when I was a younger man, could steal past a certain inhibition which had paralyzed much of my own religion and childhood. Now, some of you will be able to relate to this. Why did I find it so hard to feel as I was told one ought to feel about God or the sufferings of Christ? And then he says, an obligation to feel can freeze feelings. And reverence itself did harm. Because the whole subject, he's talking about reverence and church, was was associated with lowered voices, almost as if it were something medical. He said, but suppose you cast these things, the things of God, in an imaginary world, stripping them 
of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, might that not make them for the first time appear in their real potency? Could we not then steal past those watchful dragons? I love how he put that. How does Jesus get past the watchful dragons who were the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people who were holding on to their power with a death grip that not even God could pry their fingers loose? How do you get past them, but how do you also get to them? What does it say in verse 12? They perceived that he had told the parable against them. How do you break through? How do you at least try? Jesus told all the truth, but he told it slant. He quoted Psalm 118 in this little story recalling the vineyard destruction from Isaiah 5. Psalm 118, a psalm that deals with aftermath. He quotes Psalm 18 because it's high praise to God for eternal protection after experiencing things where that protection seemed absent, but it wasn't. Let me employ a fairy story right here to buttress this from Harry Potter. In the Harry Potter stories, his mother's named Lily. And in the first book in the series, the evil Lord Voldemort tries to kill Harry, but he can't touch him. And what Voldemort does is he possesses this uh, villain who tries to lay hands on Harry, but when the villain does, he experiences agonizing pain. He's, he's thwarted. He can't, he can't get to Harry. And Harry later goes to Dumbledore, his mentor, and he asks, why couldn't he touch me? When he touched me, and he, why, why did that happen? And Dumbledore replies, your mother died to save you. And he says, love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark, not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. Now, friends, I don't care where that comes from. All truth is God's truth. And the reason that resonates with us is because we know from experience, from even the mundane experience of the dramatic, sacrifice is at the real heart of love. And when you see it happening, you draw into it. In Isaiah's poem, Isaiah 5, the vineyard God loves is destroyed. In Jesus' parable, Mark 12 here, the vineyard owner faces the destruction of his own beloved son. And yet the son, the owners, father, son, and spirit, rise up to outlive the destroyers and even redeem some of them. See, we're looking at this story in Mark 12, this side of the cross. And so this story doesn't just speak to those and of those who, who physically in that day and time put Jesus on the cross. This side of the cross, we know that our sin put him there too. Our unrighteousness, our self-righteousness. But don't we also know that though he was rejected by men, Jesus also had the forever protection of his father. See, our gospel is completely unique among world religions because there's nothing like grace. And there's nothing like a gracious God who bears the burden of hoping himself. This cornerstone language, verse 10, again quoting Psalm 118, 
cornerstones set the foundation. That was, that was the real key uh, element, particularly in ancient construction. And foundations are for building upon. The people of God in Christ are built on rejection. Jesus' rejection, our foundation. And if that's our foundation, it means suffering and, and risk and loss may very well be our experience in Christ. Because think about it, we're marked out. We worship a crucified man. And that, needs, that means we will need to draw upon some resources that are made available to us uniquely from Christ, in Christ, by Christ. And we have to know how to draw upon them. And this takes us to the second takeaway. The church is not only built on rejection. The church is also built for resilience. Here are some awful things that we've gone through collectively and individually, the psalmist of Psalm 118 says. Here's some awful things that we've been through. The psalm Jesus picked here, it rings on the theme, we looked like goners, if not that the Lord was with us, a living God. His purposes for us, including these hard things, but he knows. He sees all the way through, and he does for his people, and we're going to celebrate that. That's Psalm 118. You know, I've been learning something about, about resilience. Put this in your file of how to draw upon resources like patience and resilience. I, I've been learning that I don't really know how to praise God, even though I know how to preach psalms. And I have preached them. And I've read them, and I've read studies of them, and I've taught praises, and I've got some marvelous little definitions of praise here and there that preachers can pull out of their pocket when somebody impromptu says, could you say a few words, parson, at the dinner tonight? Yes, got a few things. But see, what I've learned in reality is that I'm actually given to extremes. I don't want to think I am as I like to appear balanced. My own self-concept is that I'm a very balanced person, very even-keeled. But I remember Howard Hendricks, who's with the Lord now, was one of my professors at Dallas, used to say, balanced people are just at the lowest pendulum swing between extremes. <laughs> and I get it now, I totally get that now. When he first said it, I thought, but I first, when he first said it, I was 23 years old, and uh, just didn't know. And, um, and now I get it. Balanced people are just at the lowest point of the pendulum swing between extremes. My extreme is that I've lived most of my Christian life entirely cerebrally. Now, I don't plan to stop being cerebral. It's a large part of how I engage with God. Uh, we're told to love God with our minds. But I was always so distrustful of my emotions. And uh, when you're distrustful of your emotions and you live quelling them, and they, they come out usually, and then they come out the wrong way, you know, when you're too pent up. So what I'm learning now slowly, and I've, I've been needing to learn for a long time, but I, I see it now, is that in the center of resilience is not willing your way through by disciplining your mind to get to the other side. That's a piece of it. I'm not saying that's not involved, but it's not the whole. For too long, for me, it was the whole of it. And I think what I missed for a long time, and I'm now starting to see, 
is in the center of true resilience is, is praise. It's learning to praise. It's being a praiser. It's praising. Which is to say that the people who demonstrate that they bear the burden of hoping are people who keep learning how to praise God and keep practicing it. You know, we come in here on a Sunday morning from a variety of different things. Yesterday, I spent most of the day in a, in a car dealer's showroom trying to get rid of my truck and get another one. I did successfully, new to me. And uh, you come in here, and, and I had to say something to Chris and Ryan, and then I had to deal with something up here. And we got to the first song, and I realized uh, my mind's not even here. You know, It's still in the showroom in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Did I get a good deal? Did I really? You know, I should have held out for more. Well, it's too late now. I've already signed all the papers. Um, my truck was breaking down and needed to replace it. So, and then I started to sing, and I, and I tried to apply what I've been learning, and I, and I realized, you know, you just, you just do it. I mean, I don't mean to be Nike about it, but you just, you just do. You just start singing, and you trust as you do that that, that uh, you, you're... you're your heart and mind will catch up to the, to the rest of you. And, and before long, you know, I, I, was, I was focusing, which is what praise is supposed to do. It, it's supposed to focus us. I mean, it, praise is not uh, this, you know, God is fishing for compliments and you need to find the right ones to give him. You know, pra- praise is, is centering us on the attributes of God, uh, namely his faithfulness and his steadfast love and his, and his goodness to us, even if the bottom is falling out. In life, Christians have been doing this for centuries. There is no resilience without praising. That's what I'm learning. See, there was a time I would have come to this story about these renters who act like owners to the point they do this to, to his servants and his son. And, and I would spend our time sort of meandering, trying to get this psychological profile of, of what these dudes are doing. And, and there's a place for that and, 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 a, and a part uh, to that. But that was my extreme. And, and, and then I look at this story and I say, you know, this is an awful story. I mean, good grief. Uh, what, a, what an owner. You send all these servants over all this time and then you send your son? And then you go, well, what is a psalm of praise doing here in this awful story? Why is that here? And if you think of praise as a, you know, happy, clappy all the time, you will wonder why praise shows up. If you have an extreme notion of praise, that that's what it must be. It must be this feeling of fullness that overflows. And if that's what you think praise is, as I, I think I thought it was in just my default notion, it was never challenged until I realized I was needing to embark on a journey of getting to some emotional health, that, then you do wonder. If that's your sense of praise, then you do wonder, why does the psalm of praise, Psalm 118 is a psalm of praise. What is it doing in an awful story like this? And when you ask that question, you take a step back and you, you realize, um, well, why doesn't a psalm of praise show up here? I mean, this, this, this is a worst moment for God, isn't it? Look what's happening to him. Look what's been happening to him for hundreds of years. And now his son shows up. Surely they will respect my son. Remember Isaiah, all day long I've held out my hands to an obstinate and disobedient people. All day long. 
What do I have to do? Well, I've got to send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And they don't. But you remember Lewis's words I quoted in the context of getting past the watchful dragons? Lewis said, an obligation to feel can freeze feelings. Remember me shutting down the applause last week as I indicated that uh, I'd like the freedom to express with hands what the heart affirms and the truth of God as we sing it in here. And I shut that down because we don't need to take sides. Um, we don't need to, nobody needs to feel obligated to do what I do or as I do it. There's no hall monitors in worship. Right now, passes, you know. Well, I saw you, I've never seen you do that before. And so, you know, and I, you do that and, and somebody needs to, you know, it just, we, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Second Corinthians says that. And the freedom is ordered. It's within, it's within boundaries. Corinthians goes on to tell us that it has to be. But there's freedom. And uh, I shut the applause down because, you know, no one needs to feel obligated to do what I do or as I do it. But because, see, that's, that's the thing I, I think I'd miss for so long. Praise is not the obligation to feel something. If you think it is, you won't do it. Because your feelings will always be, <laughs> some, not always, but a lot of times they'll be behind. Praise is not an obligation to feel. It's, it's a submission of my feelings to God as I'm feeling them. Whether I'm in the rawness of something or the ripeness <laughs> of something, I yet cling to his goodness. I center myself on the attributes of God and the Holy Spirit dwelling in me Mediating the presence of Christ to me, that, that's, that's how it, it begins to flicker and flame. God doesn't abandon just because awful things are happening. In fact, and it's only Christians who think like this, it's in the truly awful things that we experience the, how steadfast the love of the Lord is and that it really does never cease and and that spurs praise of him. God judges the awful thing, the evil thing. He does. It's here in our parable. But he also builds our resilience in and through it. I mean, you see in the actions of the owner, continues to sin, continues to sin, continues to sin. He teaches us how to, how to praise him in and through it. You have to know you are steadfastly loved by a greater love than your own if you're going to be resilient. And where you square up to that is, is in praise. Because in praising, the attributes of God are, are there to be stood upon and to be held and to be thrown up in the air and to be embraced and to be collapsed upon. And so to say the church is built for resilience means the church is in the world for the world to hear our praises ring when there seems to be nothing to sing about. But Christians have been singing people from the outset. In fact, uh, through the centuries, many of us have gone to our deaths singing. What is that? It's praise. But what is praise? It's resilience. It's resilience with the attributes of God. The God who keeps going, keeps sending. And because he does, because he did, we get grace upon grace upon grace. See, see, the resilience on display in this story 
This is what I never saw before this week. The resilience on display in this story, I, I would often turn that to sort of a persistent application. But then you think about it and you say, well, you know, if persistence is about just outstubborning the hell bent, well, that's foolish to keep sending your choice servants to these renters. They're animals. Well, how would you do that? I mean, sense and sensibility would say if they're doing this to the servants, why would I ever send my son? But then the, the, if, it's, if it's just persistence for its own sake, yeah, it's foolish. But if it's resilience, then that is something closer to the actual experience of the greatest kind of love there is. I don't know that we ever quite get our heads around this fully, but the gospel is actually made more glorious by the rejection of the one who should only be glorified. But then this vineyard owner, he, he keeps sending servants and then his son. And after all that rejection, he's still in the vineyard business? That's what it says. Do you notice verse 9? It's easy to read past it. What will the owner of the vineyard do? The answer is, he'll get out of the vineyard business. No, the answer in verse 9 is, he will come and destroy the tenants, judgment, and give the vineyard to others. There's not a businessman in here who would give the counsel to the vineyard owner to keep the vineyard after all that's happened to him. Sell it. Get rid of it. But no, he gives the vineyard to others. He stays in the business at even infinite cost to himself. And who are the others? I wish I had a dinger up here. Ding, 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 ding. It's us. Here we are, gathered in this place. And I must ask us, are we really so much better than the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people who went before us? How do you demonstrate that your love is essentially sacrificial without sacrificing anything? And you know, you and I have severe limits when it comes to our trying to pull that off. Something else I'm learning about myself is I do not love unconditionally. But God has no limits in demonstrating his graciousness Yes, there's judgment in this story. There has to be for our actions to mean anything. But Jesus tells this story on the way to the cross that the vineyard tenants are about to nail him to. And by so doing, seal their fate as those who were irreversibly opposed to God, though they had been sent to and sent to and sent to by a gracious God who means it when he says he's gracious, but means it just as much when he says he'll not be mocked. He holds those two things together in perfect tension. But opposition to God didn't end with them. It didn't die with that generation. It continues on. And it showed up in your heart and mine, even this week, in our actions. Do we need grace? Let me count the ways. Even this parable says to us, this awful story about the judgment of those who resisted the king of kings, even this parable in its own way is saying to us, man, grace is available and it's abundant. More so than we even dare to dream. But unbelief and opposition, the rejection of grace, it has terrible consequences. You see it in the parable. But look how patient 
Look how hopeful the vineyard owner was with those he knew. He knew they weren't going to give in. And they would kill his own son. And we were complicit in this, looking at it this side of the cross. And yet we received from him grace upon grace upon grace. See, the only thing I contributed to my salvation was I got lost. (laughs) And he came and found me. To say we're built on rejection is to hold that grace. And to say we're built for resilience is to ask God again and again to tune our hearts by it. Not so that we go whistling in the dark, that we sing in the light. Vineyards don't grow without some light. And we have an abundance. We have an embarrassment of grace in our God. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And then, Ken, you going to lead us? Let me pray for us. And Ken will direct us in our singing. It really is an embarrassment of riches of your grace. We just don't even know the, the half of it. We are a people frequently... Uh, down on ourselves even when we're successful even when we're doing right it's so easy Lord to think the world revolves around ourselves and I know that I have my struggles with that Lord expand us take us out beyond the the little dark room sometimes we sit in Take us to the, the heights of places where we can see your attributes as if looking up at a, a, a night sky. And we can be awed and we can be amazed, even if through tears, even if we're still hurting, even if the thing we hate is still with us. We don't like it. And we don't know why you won't lift it. But in the meantime, and the time is mean, for a lot of us in a lot of different things health wise family wise vocation wise just weariness of living in this broken fallen stupid world we have a hope because you're the God of great patience and Lord we we fear you because of your judgments but we Sing with those who have gone before us for hundreds of years. Gratitude that Christ took our judgment in our place. And so we have life and we have hope. Lord, teach us how to respond to you and how to draw upon the resources that you make available to us. Show us when we feel lost and alone, when we feel afraid, when we lack courage, when we're failing, when we're doing wrong, that even in those moments there is grace for us. You really are the God who pulls his people near and you sent to us again and again and then you finally sent your son. And so he is the one we get but there's no other one we need.
And we're grateful for him. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.